All right. Good morning, Connection Mark Church. How are you doing? I am doing good. Thank you for asking. This is our 10-year birthday. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited uh, about a couple of things. I'm excited because we've got some people that were here on day one, and we've got some people who this is your day one. It's your first time here, and I will tell you I'm equally excited about both of those being in this room today because uh, this church is really, really a powerful thing and been a powerful thing in my life. And I just want to let you know we have matured um, because we're calling this series we're launching Be Light and a less mature version of this church probably would have called it Get Lit, that's what I think. And so, uh, but now we've matured, right? And so we're, we're double digits, we would not do that, we would never do that. We've chosen the words of Jesus and uh, that's the way to go about it. But I will say, 11 years ago, I was at a low point in my life. 11 years ago, I had, was shutting down a church in this very area and we were wondering if... Uh, I was wondering if I had any ministry left, if my calling had been taken from me. I had no idea what God had in store. But some of the very people in this room uh, rallied around and said, hey, we're not done. We're going to launch a church. And this church is going to to be an incredible church. And I just want to let you know a couple of things about the last 10 years. Um, First of all, we've been in, this is our third city to be in, Wiley, and this is where God has been calling us. This is where we're going to be from what we think for the rest of uh, eternity till Jesus comes back. But over the last 10 years, I just want to kind of let you know God has done some great things. We've baptized 59 people, which is not too shabby. We'll give that a hand. It's... uh, We have, uh, through our mission efforts, which began in 2012, we started going throughout the world. In fact, we have had uh, over 2,000 people accept Christ throughout the world through our mission trips and mission efforts and ongoing partnerships. Um, And uh, at least one person from this church has been on a mission trip to five, uh, to a different, one of the five inhabitable continents, except for Australia. We haven't been there yet, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, But there's a worldwide impact in just this little church, this church that God put on on just a few of our hearts 10 years ago. And the interesting thing about uh, the first 10 years of this church, and this is going to be an unusual thing to say, but this church was really started for us. And when I say that, I mean it was started with kind of a, a, a purposeful uh, but inward perspective. Because many of us who started the church came from a place of being hurt or being uh, untouched, I would say, by uh, the local church. And we came from uh, church experiences that were not really drawing us to Christ. And, and really the first thing we decided when we decided, hey, we are going to, to launch a new church, God has put that on our heart, is we said, The first thing is we want this church to be fun. We want this church to be a place where we look forward to going. We want this church to be a place that when uh, the down note strikes and the band starts to play, that uh, it it, it is a place where the music draws us to God, that the message draws us to God, and that when we invite somebody, we have confidence that they're going to enjoy it because we enjoy it. And our kids aren't going to cry every single week in anticipation, but our kids are going to want to be here. And we're not going to, to... 
roll our eyes every time we volunteer, uh, but we're going to want to serve uh, in, our, in our church. We get that right about half the time, at least. Um, but it's been incredible spending 10 years really building what I think is a foundation of a great church. We have made the commitment we're going to be a family church. We're going to walk with each other through our highs and our lows, and we're going to always point people to Jesus. And I think many of you who have connected at this church have found a new life in Christ, or you've had a revival in your own heart, and that's great. But as we look to the next 10 years, uh, we can't stay with the same focus, because this inward focus, which again, I do not apologize for, we needed a church that, that was going to start inward. I believe it always starts inward before it goes outward, but as we look to the next 10 years of this church and beyond, we want to build on this foundation of a church that's moving in us, and we want to we create a church that has put our eyes out to the community. As I was preparing for this, I read a story that uh, just captivated me. It was a newspaper article. What's interesting about this newspaper article is, first of all, it came from the 1980s, the early 80s, and it was just four big pictures. It was, uh, it was the first picture was a wheat field, and this was in Kansas in the early 80s, and the first picture was just a wheat field, and the caption said, a little child, talked about a little child being lost in this wheat field. He had wandered off from um, his little farmhouse in the wheat field, and he had gone, and you could see in the picture of the wheat field that the wheat was uh, just high enough so that an adult could see into it, but a little child could not see out of it, and certainly you could not see a little child in the wheat field. The second picture was uh, the mother sitting at a farmhouse, and she was sitting at this farmhouse with her head down, and it said the, uh, the mother and the father had spent the entire day in the field looking for their lost son. And then the third uh, picture was very uh, captivating. It was about uh, two or three dozen people with their arms joined, just walking across this field, uh, systematically searching every inch. Uh, and then the heartbreaking photo was the fourth one. The fourth one was the child who had been found, but he was deceased. And the, the father was holding this baby in the field. And that's what captivates about the story is this picture. But the caption under that picture is just a powerful statement that the father made. He said, the, the caption just read, Oh God, I wish we would have joined hands sooner. And when I, I read that caption, I thought, you know what, that's, that's my burden for the next 10 years of this church. That's my burden for this sermon series, is that I want to invite us as a church to join hands, to invite us as a church to decide, you know what, we're going to make a commitment that just as God has um, he, he sought us out and He saved us, that we're going to join hands and we're going to make sure that no one in the cities of Wiley, of Levon, of Lucas, of St. Paul, of Murphy, of Plano, of Saxe, of Rowlett, Garland, wherever they are, we're not going to have anyone that would ever look and, and say, God, I wish someone would have joined hands sooner. And so I want to invite us in this series to look to the next 10 years of our church and the calling he's put on our lives to become a part of a search team. And, and I want to make sure 
that I'm not talking in this message about the spiritual gift of evangelism, okay? I'm not talking about, oh, well, I'm not that just type of person. I'm not the type of person that just goes up and talks about it. That's, that's not who I am. I'm talking today about the spiritual mandate, the command that Jesus gave to all of his followers. Everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ, he has called us to be the light of the world. In fact, he himself described his mission is to come and seek and save the lost. And so before we even get into it, if you are a Christ follower and you are a little reluctant to this idea of evangelism, you're a little reluctant to the idea that it's, it's really your job, to have, who are you to tell someone else about Jesus? I want to just kind of go back to that illustration of the farmhouse. How crazy would it have been for someone to be invited to come search for a little lost boy whose life hung in the balance and for you to say, you know what, I've never been on a search team. I don't know how to join hands. I, I really, I'm not, I'm not big on fields. Of, who knows? There could be snakes in that field. It, it's probably going to be itchy if I go in that field. How ridiculous would it be for us to say, you know what, I, I'm not going to join. I'll tell you the reason that you don't join a search party. It's because you don't think about the lost. You think about yourself. But anyone who thinks about that little boy lost in the field would, would, would not hesitate to join that team. Maybe you got a fear of, you know, I, if I find him, what am I going to do? I don't know how to do CPR. I don't know how to, you know, talk to a child. That's like, I don't know. What, how, what am I going to say? But when you know there's just a lost child and, and somebody's got to go, you don't worry about that. You say, you know what, I'll go and I will figure it out when I find them. And I will tell you, as Christ followers who have been radically changed, as many of us in this church can say, how can we not get excited at the opportunity to join into a search party knowing that somebody joined a search party to find us? Today, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most famous uh, sermon. Probably one of the most important teachings ever given. It's in Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be. If you have a cell phone, you can go to connectionpoint.life on your phone. Uh, just silence it as you go there. And Matthew chapter 5, but on your phones, you go to sermon notes or go to the, the little sermon card. And then the sermon notes should be pretty easy to find. And we're going to go through this Sermon on the Mount. And as we go through this series... We'll get a little more of the context, but I want to give you a little context of this sermon that Jesus is preaching today. And, and I'm going to give you the context just by looking at the first two verses. It says, Seeing the crowd, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. So the immediate context of what's happening in this whole sermon is he's out and about, and as he's out and about, he, uh, he sees a lot of people. He sees these people, and it prompts him to action. He says, you know what, now's the moment. He sees a lot of people. He's prompted to action. So he goes up onto the hillside or onto a mountain, and he sits down. And when a rabbi sits down, and Jesus was a teacher, and when a teacher in that time sat down, that means he's ready to give a formal teaching. And so Jesus kind of signified to his followers, to his mainly 12 disciples, hey, you see all these people we got to talk about this. So he goes up onto this mountainside. He sits down, and they, they come to him. The 12 disciples who have already given their lives to follow him, decided they're going to follow him, decide, okay, he's going to teach us something important. Let's go see 
what it is. And other people came, and there were other people that, that didn't know what they really thought about Jesus. They were there. They, you know, they, they wanted to know uh, why there were people gathering out on this mountainside. But the main focus of this sermon is these 12 disciples. Now, that's the immediate context, but if you draw out a little bit, there are, uh, there's a greater context here. There's a lot of people at this time, just like now, who are searching for God. They want to know how can they find God? How can they know God? What does it mean to, to find salvation? Is there an afterlife? All these questions that we ask, they were asking. And there are many different groups at this time that are looking and, and telling you that they've got the answers. There's one group called the Essenes, okay? The Essenes uh, made the decision before Jesus lived, a group of people decided, you know what? This world is going to hell in a handbasket. God is about to probably come and end this thing. And so the Essenes left Jerusalem, and they went out into uh, the, the, the Dead Sea. And there are caves. I went there last year. There are caves all over this place where they are. And they started living in these caves, and they made the decision that they're going to remove themselves from the world. That the best thing they can do if they want to know God is get totally away from anyone who would be sinful, anyone who's not seeking God. And so they removed themselves. There's another group called the Zealots. And the Zealots were zealous. That makes pretty good sense. And the Zealots had the idea that if you really want to please God, if you really want to know God, you've got to overthrow the establishment, specifically in this context, Rome. And so the Zealots were pushing for a revolution. You know, we've got to take up arms. We've got to overthrow. It's up to us to move in the, the, the new kingdom of God. And then there are the kind of the, I like to think of it as the Republicans and Democrats of the, uh, of the time. You've got the Pharisee. The Pharisees are a group of, of people who have been following the Old Testament for quite a while. And they have come to, to love the law so much that they've actually put laws and laws and laws upon the original law of God. In fact, they follow not just the written law, but they also follow the oral law. And then they follow the extra laws. And these are the laws that would say things like, hey, before you eat, you've got to wash your cup in this manner. You've got to do this. And these are things that aren't in the Bible. In fact, God never even said, but they are so uh, intent on following the law and that they don't even want to come close to breaking a law, that they just make a, a big barrier of extra laws. And that way, if you break one of the laws that's not really a law, then you didn't break God's law. And so he had this mindset, if you, want to, if you want to find God, if you want to know God, you've got to do the right things. You have got to be a good person. You have got to obey this law. And then you have a, another group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of like the Pharisees, except for they're the... A little more liberal. Uh, they're a little more PC. They're like, you know what? There are some things that those Pharisees believe that are kind of old school. And we're going to bring this, you know, the culture's different now. When those were written, it's different now. And so the, the Sadducees kind of came with, you know what? You can kind of read culture and we can kind of know. And some of the things that applied then don't apply now. And so they said that's how you, you kind of just got to gotta feel it. You know, th there's a way, but it's not exactly as strict as the Pharisee way. And it's this context that Jesus sees these people who, like today, they want to know the truth. They want to navigate life. They want to know if, if God is there, who is he? What, what's, what, is, what is he about? But Jesus calls his disciples, and he 
is going to give a sermon that is so radically different than any other thought, any other religion, then or now. And he starts off this sermon with an introduction that has beat any introduction I have ever given. He gives 10 statements called the Beatitudes, and I'm not going to preach through the Beatitudes in this sermon, in this series. I'm actually going to go back some other time and we'll preach through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are blessings. They were so shocking that anyone hearing them, the disciples hearing this would have been like, whoa, I don't know what this means. And I want to give you uh, the first two Beatitudes just so you can see how Jesus' message is going to be so radically different. The first Beatitude is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're not a religious person, you immediately say that's kind of a weird thing. What does that even mean? I've never known a person to think I'm blessed because I'm poor. And I've never known a king to be poor. This doesn't make any sense. In fact, every way to be successful in life pretty much involves not being poor, right? And yet Jesus says, hey, you're going to be happy. And that's the word that's used here. You're going to be happy. You're going to be blessed by God when you are poor. And not just poor, but poor in spirit. So anyone that, that's just kind of on the, the, the corners, on the, on the religious spectrum, and they're just kind of checking out, would have immediately said, this is different. It doesn't make any sense. Poor. But if you're a religious person, if maybe you have been a part of one of these other groups, maybe you've come from a, a religious background, and you've spent your whole life thinking, you know what, I'm just going to try to be a good person. I'm going to try to do as best I can. I'm going to try to follow God. I'm going to do the things He wants me to do. I'm going to follow the rules, be as good as I can, and, and we'll see how it goes. Jesus says to them, Blessed are you when you are bankrupt spiritually. In other words, what he says is if you want to start your journey towards the kingdom of heaven, if you want to start your journey towards God, it will begin when you say, you know what, I got nothing to offer. I got nothing to offer. You know what, I was going to try to be a good person and maybe remove myself from all the, the sinful people, but Jesus, I got nothing to offer. Jesus says, that's good. That's where we'll start. Or if maybe you think, you know what, I'm going to try to, to start a revolution, but you know what, I got nothing to offer. There's no way I could offer anything to God. Jesus says, that's where we'll start. In every single other way, I'm going to try to go to church. I'm going to try to be a good person. I'm going to try to follow all of the rules so that the God will look and say, I'm proud of that one. He, he deserves to come in. I'm not there. I am spiritually bankrupt. Jesus says, that's where we start. And, and there are some that might even say, you know what, I, 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 I just, I don't even know what to think of that. He goes on to the next one, which is a little more shocking to some of us than the first one. The second one, he says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How many of you, if you've ever lost someone or you've been through something that has brought you to a point of mourning, have ever thought, this is making me happy. This is what I wanted my whole life. No one who hears that word, blessed are you when you mourn, would ever think that's a good thing. Jesus says this is a good thing. And he's talking about, first of all, uh, on the outside, he's saying, listen, you're going to have a, a comfort that you can't find anywhere else if you go through something when you are hurting. But remember, it's never just the outward. It's always, in, it, it, it starts inside. So there's a spiritual aspect to this. He's saying to us, listen, if you're spiritually bankrupt, you have nothing to offer God. And you should also know 
that you should be mourning the sin inside of you, this rebellion, this open rebellion that we have. We should be in a state of mourning that. And he says, once you do that, then you're going to find out that you're comforted, not that, that you're able to overcome it, but that your comforter is going to, comfort is going to come. In other words, what he says is, if you're going to follow me, rather than finding this procedure and this is what you got to do, this is how you got to think, here's what you got to do. You've got to declare, I have nothing to offer you, God. I am not a good person. In fact, I'm in rebellion. I am a sinner. And you've got to mourn it. The, the word we use is repent. And if you'll simply admit you have nothing to offer God, and you'll simply admit, God, I'm sorry I'm in rebellion, God will send you comfort. And this is what's revolutionary. Everything else in this, this message, everything else flows from this perspective of, of what Jesus is saying, and it's fundamental, fundamentally different than every other religion. He's saying this. If you really want to find me, you cannot reach to heaven. God has to reach down to you. You have no way to climb to heaven. You have no way to find God. The only way you'll ever receive comfort is if God reaches down to you. And that is the foundational teaching of what Jesus is going to teach to all of his believers. And it flows through all the rest of the Beatitudes, through every sermon you'll ever hear. That is the foundation of Jesus' teaching. You have nothing to offer. You cannot reach to God. You cannot be good enough. You cannot do it on your own. The only way you'll ever find God is if he reaches down to you. Jesus' message, if you go through all of his words, you find out there's another nuance, that it's not a procedure that it's a, pers a person he's proclaiming. Uh, John, one of his best friends, he says it this way. He says, one time I heard Jesus say this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, sometimes we might think this a little exclusive. I, I don't know if I can, you know, say Jesus is the only way. And I just want to let you know, I think that Christianity is the most inclusive religion that has ever been. Because from Jesus' perspective... Every single one of you has nothing to offer. I have nothing to offer. We are all in the same boat. If you are black, white, if you are from Mexico, if you are from uh, Venezuela, if you are from South America, if you're from China, if you're from Australia, if you're from anywhere, if you are any stature, you have nothing for God, and you are all invited to the party, is what Jesus says. You are all spiritually bankrupt, but you are also all invited to have comfort from God your comforter. This is the message of Jesus. Now, as he preaches through this, we're going to skip up to verse 13 because this is really where I want to hit today. In verse 13, you've got to understand, he's now going to be addressing his 12 disciples, the ones who have sold out for him, the ones who have said, you know what, Jesus, we are in. We believe you are the Messiah, that is the anointed one, the Christ. We believe that you are God in heaven, come down here to rescue us. You are the rescue party. And, and to them he looks, and this is what he says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, salt has a, a lot of meanings. There's a lot of things that salt does, salt flavors. 
salt, uh, excuse me, salt uh, preserves first. Uh, do you know if you have salt and you put salt in water, it's called brine, and you can keep fish? You can go catch a fish, put it in a brine in, in salt water. It'll, it'll stay good for nine months. You can eat that nine months later and not get sick. Salt was so valuable at the time, Roman uh, soldiers would be paid in salt sometimes. Now, salt not only, flav- uh, salt not only uh, preserves, it flavors. And that's really what I think Jesus is talking about in this, that salt flavors, okay? Now, we know this, and I think Jesus is talking about salt as a flavoring. That He's looking at his disciples and saying, hey, you're the flavor of this life. You are. You, my followers, are the flavor of this life. You know, in Ethiopia, they put salt in their coffee. That was one of the most unusual things I'd ever seen, but it's actually not that, that bad. But salt can flavor anything. And so Jesus looks at his followers, and he says to them, listen, you need to understand that everybody in this life wants to have flavor in their life. Everyone is searching for some type of flavor in their life. And when they think of who is the the saltiest, who's the most flavor, who's the type of people that I want my life to be, what would be the most exciting life I could live, it's going to be when they look at you. That's what he says to his disciples. He says, if you're a Christ follower, you should be the saltiest. You should have the most flavor. I think this is one of the biggest hurdles we face right now because we have let a false narrative creep into our Christian lives. Now, uh, this past year we went on several mission trips, and on one of the mission trips I was listening, and I just heard this comment. We were learning how to tell our story, we call it our testimony, just our, our, our spiritual journey. And one of the people said, you know what, I'm not going to tell my testimony. And they pointed to somebody else, why don't you tell your testimony? Because your testimony is exciting, but I have a boring story. And anytime I hear this, this is where I just kind of cringe and I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. That's, that's not the right perspective. You don't have a boring, you cannot be a Christ follower and have a boring testimony. You have a salty testimony. You have a flavorful story. You know some of the flavors that God says a Christ follower will have? have one, his, one of his followers, Paul, said this. He said that, that you're going to have uh, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That's going to be the flavor of your life. And you're like, I don't know, that doesn't sound that exciting. Self-control doesn't sound that exciting. But let me put it in perspective here. Everyone you know in this world is looking for flavor in some way. And Jesus says no matter if they're looking for it through uh, relationships, through pornography, through wine, through, uh, through alcohol, drugs, through working, through um, success, whatever it is, you're more flavorful. What you have is going to be more flavorful for, for them. And we say, well, I have a boring testimony, you know. For me personally, I grew up in church. I, I didn't uh, have a story of... of Drinking. In fact, I, I even kind of managed my money okay because my parents taught me that God was the owner of it all and my wife, she uh, walks with the Lord. And so I've been protected in a lot of ways. And I started thinking about this and I've been a minister now for 20 years and I'll tell you that I talk to so many people who have been through hard times. And I think to myself, you know what? I'm so grateful that my parents gave me the gift of a boring testimony. I'm so thankful that there's so many things that I've been able to make wise decisions because my parents taught me in this way. And in fact, the number one thing I want to give to my kids is a boring testimony. That's the best gift I could give them. 
It's for them to grow up and know, you know what, not only are they loved, but there's not a guilt hanging on them. That, that, that God loves them because they're part of a family. When they think about their relationship with God, it's not them trying on a hamster wheel trying to get somewhere they'll never achieve. It's them knowing I'm a part of a family and I'm there because I have nothing to offer. But God reached down and God loves me and I have no guilt. I have nothing to worry about because Jesus Christ. Now, Another perspective is, I know many of you in this room grew up around people, and you yourself have an exciting testimony. And you know what? There are people in this room who have been abused. There are women in this room who have been abused. There are, children, uh, uh, there are adults who were children and abused. There are some of you in here who went through bankruptcy or who lost almost everything, who went through broken relationships. And I've never met somebody with an exciting testimony who wouldn't at least on some level say, you know what, I kind of wish I'd have had a boring testimony. I would have I loved to have not had to go through that. There's something powerful about living a flavorful life and understanding if we follow God, God will protect us. And even in the hard times, that we still have a flavor in our life. You are the salt of the earth, but if you lose its taste, how does it lose its taste? Salt can't lose its taste. It can only get diluted. If you drop a bag of salt and it breaks open onto the ground, you don't use that salt anymore, not because it's not salty anymore, but because it's now contaminated. Part of what we've got to do as Christ followers is understand we have a call to preserve. You realize we're only one generation at all times, only one generation away from the gospel being lost, from the church being lost. He says, you know what, you've got to not only preserve, you've got to flavor this. Some of us in here would say, you know what, I've got so much going on in my life, there's no way I could add that much flavor. I just don't have that much to offer. And that's why I think it's important for Jesus gives us another metaphor. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light into all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The next thing I want you to see is that light reveals Light shines is how I would say it. Light shines. A light is supposed to reveal things. It's supposed to shine. I have a dog, and every night I have to put my dog up, and it's always dark, so I turn my, my flashlight on my uh, phone. My dog will not move until there is the light, until he has a light to walk by. That's the purpose of light. Salt might be for ourselves, but light cannot be kept to itself. It's supposed to shine. This is what uh, Jesus' best friend John said about him. He said, in Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light has, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I think a lot of us, we focus so much on ourselves, even as Christians. And we forget that we're supposed to be shining out and revealing. And, and we begin to, to really uh, amp up our depression and our, our self-centeredness because we're not shining. We're keeping something that's supposed to be given. We're keeping it to ourselves. But there is a powerful thing that happens when you begin to see that the light in you is shining and affecting other people. It begins to affect you. I want to show you a video in just a second here that uh, the first time I've, sh I've actually showed this a few years ago, uh, so some of you might have seen this, but this video, the first time I ever saw this video, it impacted me profoundly on my thoughts of evangelism or he's going to talk, call it proselytizing. Because I used to kind of have this, even as a minister, this idea of, you know what, I don't want to be that guy that really 
is so bold that, that pushes people and, 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 is, and is really pushy about my faith and just tells people, oh, Jesus is the best way. I kind of want them to come to me. Uh, and then I'm going to show you this video. It's from uh, a famous guy named Penn Jillette. He's a magician. Uh, in fact, I've been to his show. It's a, he's a great magician. He's an atheist, and he uh, is not just an atheist. He's pretty, uh, uh, I mean, he's a pretty outspoken atheist. In fact, his view is that religion poisons everything and that religion does more harm than good. But I want you to watch this video and just notice how, even with someone that, that, that just has the, the ounce of, of courage to share with him, creates a light. Go ahead and roll the video. And he walked over to me and he said, um, I was here last night at the show and uh, uh, I saw the show and I liked it. I wanted, and he was very complimentary about my use of language and um, complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. No reason to go into it. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition. Um, I thought it said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive, and he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And I've always thought that, and I've written about that, and I've thought of it conceptually. This guy was a really good guy. He was polite and honest and sane, and he cared enough about me to proselytize and give me a, a Bible. How much do you have to hate someone to believe eternal life is possible 
and not tell them. That has set in my soul for 15 years hearing that. And as we look to the future of this church, I want us to make a commitment that we will not passively hate people any longer simply by being silent and saying, you know what, I don't want to be that guy, I don't want to be that girl, I don't want to make this awkward. And so I want to tell you about the next few years of our church, specifically the next year of our church. Now, you're going to notice a turn in our church, a pivot. It's not going to change anything, it's just going to build on the foundation we have of making sure this is a church that speaks to us, that, that God can work in our life. But we can no longer just remain focused on ourselves. Now, we're going to launch a campaign, a journey, whatever you want to call it, because we uh, are going to start talking about our future permanent location. We want to be a city on a hill. We want, to, we want people to drive by whatever location we are and say, you know what, maybe this is a dark day for me. Maybe if I stop there, maybe there's someone there that can give me hope. Or maybe they'll check it out on a Sunday morning, just drive by and say, you know what, maybe there's, there's a reason I can go in there and somebody will be there and share hope with me. That's who we want to be. And over the last few years, we've been investigating what it's going to take, and we know some, some metrics, some numbers we've got to hit, and so we're going to start going after those numbers unashamed. The, the first number we know we've got to get is we've got to get about $100,000 in our savings account or in our checking account just to have, uh, that's what the bank likes. And the good news is, is that we're well on our way there, that uh, we're not, that's really not a concern. We think we'll be able to hit that as long as people give generously to our general offering. We think we'll be there. The next thing we need is we need about $450,000 in a building fund that we'll be able to uh, put for a down payment. And the, the good news about that is we've got $150,000 already saved that you've already given, which is exciting. And I honestly believe, along with many of the, the elders and leaders, that the money is going to come when it's time, that God is going, that we have the money that we're going to give generously. I'm not worried about the money at all. And so... The third metric is the one that has been on my radar now for a couple of years, and that is most lenders want a church to be about 250 people before they lend to it and just have a kind of a base to know they're going to be here. And for us, sometimes, you know, we've, we've had big Sundays, but our average attendance here is probably about 120, 130, somewhere around there. We usually have about 80 adults, and we usually have uh, about 40 kids on an average Sunday. And so... As we prayed about this year, 2020, we're going to do something that I don't know that in the history of church building programs, I don't know that a church has ever done what we're going to do. We're going to do a building campaign, and we're not going to ask you for money. Now, you can give money, but we're not going to ask you for a dime. We're going to spend this year focused on reaching people and growing our church to about 220 people is what we're going to aim for this year. And we're going to call it the 220 campaign or the 220 journey, and we're going to launch it on March 31st, so I want that to be on your radar. But I want to make clear that the vision of this is not that, well, they need to do this, and man, wouldn't it be great to have 220 people? My salary's not going to jump up because there's more people in the church. It's none of that. What excites me most and scares me most about this is that I truly believe that when we become a church with our own place, our own location, and we become a pillar of the community and people know that we exist, when they walk in, what I want them to find is not just the church of 220 people next year. 
What I want them to find is the type of church that reaches 100 people in one year. Because that's really where the move of God has to happen, where every single person, there are probably 70 or 80 of us in this room right now. And to to reach this, that would simply mean every single one of us is going to have to reach one person this year for Christ. And not just reach and evangelize, but actually say, you know what? We want you to come be a part of this. We want you to come join our team. We want you to see what God can do in your life and then what he will do through your life. I've never been more excited about a campaign or a focus that we've done in this church. I've never been more scared. I know we can raise money in this church. I know we can do fun things in this church. But this is something that we've never done. It's grown to this magnitude. And I think we can do it. I think we can do it in a year. And so I want us to prepare our hearts over the, the sor- over the course of this series. The whole purpose of this series is that we join hands. And on March 29th, Sunday, we make the decision, you know what? There's never going to be anyone around us who can cry out and say, God, I wish they would have joined hands sooner. Because they're going to know we did everything we could to be the light of the world. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to invite the band up. uh, And we're going to continue worshiping in just a second. But I want to tell you about something that happened this week as they come up. As I was preparing this, I started thinking, you know what? It's real easy for me as a preacher. You know, I get to proclaim the gospel on Sundays, but I'll be honest with you. Uh, it's been a while since I had personally shared and led someone to the Lord or even, you know, told someone boldly about Jesus. So I started praying about this. And on Thursday night this week, I uh, was around some guys. And uh, as I was talking to one of them that I'd been talking to for, I've known him for two years now had many conversations with him. He knows I'm a pastor. Uh, I know a little about his family. And for some reason, our discussion on Thursday, he asked the question, hey, are you ready to preach on Sunday? And he's never asked me about preaching. In fact, I know he's agnostic. He's told me, I don't, uh, I don't know what I believe, um, but I don't believe there's one way. And I just begin to tell him, well, can I tell you what I'm preaching on Sunday? And that might be a little easier for me because I'd already prepped all this. But I simply went through those first two parts, the first two Beatitudes. And I said, I'll tell you all you need to know about Jesus Christ from his most famous sermon. And then I, th- I got on the hook. I said, he said his followers would be light. And he says, I want to know, what does that mean, be light? And I shared him with him the core of our, 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 the difference between Christianity and every other religion. We're the only religion that says it's not a process, it's not a procedure, it's not a set of rules of be good enough or do this or go there or do that. It's a person. And this person, no matter how debased, no matter how far from God you think you are, you can never be worthy for him, but he has reached down to you and that person is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the first 10 years of Connection Point Church. I thank you that this church has never been about one person or even a group of people. This church is about a family, your family. And Lord, I pray that every one of us in here walks out of here with just a, a peace of knowing you are moving in this church. And when we celebrate lunch in a moment here, Lord, I pray 
we just can just reflect on all the good things you have done in this church and the impact we've made, not just in our communities, but worldwide. But Lord, I also pray that you will place a holy burden on us for the people in our lives, not the ones on social media, not the ones that we never see, but the ones that we are going to be face-to-face with. Lord, I pray that you'll begin to reveal who's the one or two people that we need to invest in this year, and we need to let them know there's a God who loves them, and there's no way they're going to find them until they're ready to say, you know what? I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of trying to be good enough or wondering if I've been good enough. Lord, we look forward to the moment this year when somebody accepts Christ, and they invite you into their life and their life is transformed and we know we were a small part of it simply because we joined hands and said, you know what, I'm going to take a step. I'm going to follow. So Lord, we pray you'll bless the next 10 years like you have the first 10 years. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.